Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And you can turn to page 900. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Would you join me as we continue to worship as we pray before the word? Lord God, prepare our hearts so that we may accept your word. Would you silence in us any voices but your own so that we may hear your word and obey it through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. When I do a quick word study on my computer's Bible program, um, I come up with 11 words for the word idol. And those 11 words are used 111 times in the Old Testament. And there are four words that come up for Greek, and those words are used 22 times. It doesn't take much to remind me as we look at the word that God takes idols and idolatry seriously. When we look at the Ten Commandments, the Lord God says after, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, gives the first commandment and says, you shall have no other gods before me, no other gods. And as you begin to wonder, what do you mean by other gods? God continues with the second commandment and says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, that's an idol, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We worship a jealous God who wants our entire commitment and dedication. If you go through a brief survey of Israel's history, you will notice clearly that the Israelites continue to consistently worship idols. Despite the prohibition, they consistently worship again and again. And as we went over a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Eugene preached, um, right after they are delivered from the bondage of Egyptians, the Israelites build a golden calf. They build the first idol right after. And in the land of Canaan, After Joshua dies, 
the Israelites begin to worship the idols of the land, the very thing that they're told not to do. And before we have the kings, when the judges were uh, leading and ruling, Israelites continued to waver back and forth from obedient, being obedient to God and being idolatrous the rest of the time. And the vicious cycle just keeps repeating again and again. And during the United Monarchy, we have King Solomon who disobeys God and marries foreign women who worship foreign gods and erects foreign idols and worship their deities. And when the monarchy is split, you have division between the north and the south, Israel and Judah. You have Jeroboam, who builds golden calves in the northern kingdom so that his people wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem. And you have Rehoboam of the Judah, who worshipped Asherahs. And throughout the Israelites' history, you have king after king who continues to worship idols, with the exceptions of perhaps Hezekiah and Josiah, who sought out to eradicate these places of high worship. You read the Old Testament and you will see referencing again to these high places, false gods. You see captivities and chastisement, chastisement um, on account of idolatry and Israel repeatedly going back to this old sin of idolatry. And the sin of idolatry eventually leads the armies of Egypt to Assyria and eventually of the Babylon to come and take over. In the ten tribes, you have the Assyrians coming around 722, taking the Israelites captive. You have the burning of Jerusalem and the carrying of Judah around 587 BC when the Babylonians come and taking Israel to captivity. All of this essentially because Israelites were worshiping idols. And the prophets, even during the Babylonian captivity, condemned Israel for idolatry. Isaiah prophesied again and again. And even after the exile, when they came back, there was intermarriages of foreign nations leading to idol worship. The Bible uses a very explicit imagery to show the gravity of idolatry. This, because idolatry was really essentially breaking the covenant and inviting judgment before God. And what does Bible use to show how serious idolatry is? Bible uses the image of prostitution, uses the language of adultery to describe when people of God worships idols that you are committing adultery before God. You are prostituting yourself. Just as sexual infidelity breaks the marriage covenant, so religious infidelity breaks the covenant. I know Pastor Eugene mentioned Hobbit before, but um, one of the plot device in the Lord of the Rings is the ring, Sauron's ring. And it has this power 
to corrupt anyone who tries to use it, despite their good intent. And as one person says, the ring is a uh, psychic amplifier. It takes the heart's strongest desires and fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportion. They're good characters with good intentions, whether in wanting to liberate slaves or preserve their people's land or uh, admit justice. But all, all these are good objectives. But what happens when one possesses the ring, it begins to work in them so that they begin to do anything and everything to achieve those results. Good things eventually become absolute things, overturning even the values they once possessed. And the one who wears a ring begins to be enslaved and addicted. And they can't live without it. They must have it. And drives them to break rules, harm others, even themselves to get it or keep it. Idols Idolatry is essentially spiritual addiction that leads to terrible evil, as Tolkien clearly knew in writing the story. When you look at the word idolatry, it, it comes with two uh, words, idol and latria, which has to do with worship. So it literally means idol worship. Um, and idol worship is essentially uh, worshiping something other than the true God in a true way. Idolatry is something, worshiping something other than the true God in a true way. So there is a right way of worshiping, and that right way needs to be utilized to worship the right God. When we, as people of God, practice idol worship, Essentially, in so doing, we're saying God is deficient. If we practice idolatry, we're essentially saying that God is not all wise, he's not all powerful, and he's not all sufficient. There's something lacking, so I need to go to something else to get what I think I need. Why else do people break the Ten Commandments? I mean, it's because we don't truly believe the first and second commandment. It's like, why else would we be motivated to use the Lord's name in vain, not remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, not honor our parents? Why do, we, why do people murder? Why do people commit adultery, steal, give false testimony, and covet? Because we don't truly believe that God is all able, all sufficient, all good, all knowing. J.C. Ryle defines idolatry as a worship in which the honor due to God in Trinity and to him only is given to some of his creatures or some invention of his creatures. We seek to honor God but at the same time, we commit idolatry if we're not careful. And they go side by side, as we see in the book of Corinthians. These are people who have 
turn to God, yet they are also committing idolatry. Idolatry is a natural product of human heart. It's, it's like a weed. You really don't have to put that much effort. It just grows. You know, you want to try to get a nice rose bush. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. But weeds, you really don't have to do anything. And it will just prosper and grow everywhere and anywhere. Idols are like that. We are so formed in that, as Calvin would say, human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It naturally produces these idols. Because we have this tendency to want to give sensual, carnal worship, easy worship, that the world typically does. And idolatry, if you think about it, is really just natural, not supernatural. It is natural, and it is downhill, it's easy, and it's the broad way as the Bible scripture talks about. It's a path that everyone treads on. But true, biblical, spiritual worship, it's really all by the grace of God, and it is all uphill. It is hard. It goes against the grain. For those of us, um, we've been blessed to read God's Word and been reading through McChain's Bible reading calendar. A couple of days ago, we just started Book of Romans, and Book of Romans tell the very condition of human heart with idolatry. In chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, it reads, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Speaking, referencing the second commandment that speaks against idolatry here. We come to verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it starts, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Therefore, Paul has gone through all these explanations. He's been charging the Corinthians to run the race, this race of faith to the end so that you do not get disqualified. And right before until verse 13, he, he's been warning the Corinthian church, right? Learn from the Israel's history so that you don't fall. Because you know what the Corinthians have been doing? They thought they were safe. They thought they were secure in their baptism, in their participation in the Lord's Supper. Pastor Eugene, I'm sure we'll go more on this next week as we go to verse 16 and with the communion, Lord's Supper. They thought, you know, because they were baptized, because they partook in the Lord's Supper, they were immune. They were not threatened by this kind of idol uh, worship that they were participating with their friends and business cohorts, etc., when they went to these feasts. They thought of the Lord's Supper as kind of a grace dispenser. You go in, you get the elements, and you're good. They thought of baptism or Lord's Supper as some sort of an antidote 
you partake in it, and you are going to be protected. All this sort of thinking. Apostle Paul is reminding us, teaching us, you're so wrong. Neither baptism nor Lord's Supper protects us from God's judgment if we keep on complaining like the Israelites did, if we keep on practicing immorality as the Israelites did, if we keep on worshiping false idols. Therefore, therefore, because I've said all this, flee from idolatry. Flee. The language of flee from idolatry literally repeats earlier from chapter 6 when Apostle Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. The language and the thought process is really similar. Um, and remember, I just talked about how in Old Testament, sexual morality and unfaithfulness, idolatry, is really interconnected. Um, now, in, in verse 13, previous verse talks about God always providing a way out so that we can endure whatever temptation that comes our way. This exhortation to flee is an answer to the way out. There's a narrow window of opportunity. And when verse 13 and 14 are looked together, it kind of draws this picture, the language of um, when an army is caught in a narrow valley or a gorge, and they're urged to flee because as an army, you never want to be stuck in a gorge on a valley, right? Because you're going to be susceptible to attack from either side or from above. It's not a place you want to be. And when Scripture is using the language of fleeing, it's really using that image of an army that's trapped, run quickly to get out of situation from the advanced pursuers who's going to be coming your way. It's naive to think that you can draw close to these evils of idols without thinking that you'll be not vulnerable. Just as an army, if you walk into a gorge, you know you are putting your army in harm and danger, vulnerable to attack. If we partake in anything resembling like idol worship, idolatry, you are putting yourself in that harm's way. Get out. Flee. Don't just stand. Run. Flee. Get out. The Greek verb here, flee, means to really seek safety in a flight. Get out of there. And in a moral sense, it means to shun, avoid it. And the tense of the verb is present imperative, meaning keep on doing it. It requires a continual need to flee. So basically saying keep on running away from idolatry. Because what? As we've seen in the Old Testament throughout the scriptures, people of God will always be tempted to turn to an idol. 
you have to keep on running away. Running away. Don't go near it and expect, but run away. Flee for your life. When Pastor Eugene started preaching through um, the previous chapters, I I loved the way he threw out questions. The, The importance of asking good questions, because if you ask bad questions, you won't get to a good answer. We, because we're sinners, we have a tendency of asking questions about, you know, how, how much sin can I commit and still be okay? How, how, you know, can I really sin and still get away with it kind of mentality? It's like, well, I don't want to miss out on good things in life. And in, in so asking, we fail to really understand what Christian life is about. The better question is to ask, how far do I need to stay away from sin to be holy? See, that's a question that a mature and maturing Christian should be asking. Not, how close can I get and commit adultery and not commit adultery? When you look at this language of flee from sexual immorality, flee from idolatry, um, you begin to understand just as there's no, no such a thing as casual sex because the way God designed sex, there is really no such a thing as casual worship. You can't casually worship anything. You can't casually serve anything, anyone, because that is only set for God and God alone. The language and the logic between these two are really similar, and I'm going to just go real quick. So in chapter 6, Apostle Paul talks about flee from sexual immorality, and here today from verse 14 of chapter 10 says, flee from idolatry. Um, Present uh, imperative, keep running away, okay? In previous chapters, chapter 6, Apostle Paul, in talking about sexual morality, says, your bodies are members of Christ, essentially. You can't become one body with a prostitute, okay? So that's the rationale. And later on next week, when, you look at, when we look at verse 16 and 17, we'll know that the Lord's Supper represents that we are one body with Christ. The oneness with God prevents us from participating in this way, whether with a prostitute in sexual immorality or in idol worship. And... and Chapter 6, verse 12, in referencing fleeing from sexual morality, talks about all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And later on, chapter 10, verse 23, Apostle Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Chapter 6, he ends that section by saying, glorify God in your body. And at the end of chapter 10, he concludes the chapter by saying, do all to the glory of God. Union with a prostitute is unthinkable for a Christian. Partaking in idol worship is unthinkable because it's partnering at a table with demons because there is no casual worship. When we think about idolatry, there are various kinds 
dishonoring or defaming the character of God is idolatry because this includes believing that the true God is something else than he truly is. Because essentially it means we don't trust this God. We doubt his ability, willingness, and like I've mentioned before, when we break this, it leads us to break all the other commandments. And as we learned before in the earlier chapter 10, worshiping true God in a wrong way is also idolatry. God does care how we worship. How we worship God does matter. When the Israelites built that first golden calf, that was their intention of worshiping the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt. But they built a golden cow that was more reminiscent of the way that people worshiped in, back in Egypt. When we worship God in a way that is not prescribed by him, that is idolatry. God does care. Intentions are not good enough. Great intentions are not good enough when we go against direct, clear teachings of how God calls us to worship him. And the easiest one, worshiping any image is idolatry. Um, Scripture also talks about worshiping angels. Worshiping angels is idolatry because angels are created beings. They're never meant to be worshipped. Worshiping, praying to dead people is idolatry. Having supreme loyalty in our heart to anything other than God is idolatry. The Bible speaks in Colossians about covetousness as being idolatry. And perhaps in the most generic sense, idolatry is this inordinate, this massive desire or lust. Not necessarily sexual lust, but this inordinate desire. I gotta have it. It's like the ring. I must have it. And I cannot live if I don't have it. First John chapter 2, verse 16, lists kind of the triads of lust and desires. List the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, which is pride in possessions. Um, this inordinate desire, this appetite, often of regular things, ordinary things, like eating, drinking, playing, marrying, having sex, these activities, not much different from what we see in Corinth or in any human history when you examine cultures and civilizations. But these activities are not an end in themselves because they are usually a means to another. People seek those out and they seek personal fulfillment, comfort, security, power, or control. And when at any time a created thing is used to meet the ultimate need, something that only the Creator God is meant to and able to provide, we are committing adultery. I don't think the Corinthian Christians were thinking, you know what, instead of Christ, I want this idol. It's not usually that blatant. 
they were probably more thinking, I want Christ and this thing. Which is often the case with us. I want Christ as my Savior and Lord, but I also want this, that, and all the other things that people and the culture today says we have to have to find validation, meaning, purpose, and value. The Corinthian Christians want to be part of the church, partake in Lord's Supper, worship God. But they also didn't want to miss out in having these social opportunities, business transactions, by eating in these temples, which were kind of like today's versions of restaurants in many ways. They didn't want to miss out. They wanted both. And in doing both, they were committing spiritual adultery before God. Let me ask us, as we, perhaps most of us don't have physical idols or things that we physically look at, but we definitely have these inordinate desires that are never meant to be placed, but God alone. What motivates us to work? Well, not work right now. What drives you? What causes you to eat or not drink? Especially during this COVID time. What desires lie underneath the way you relate or don't relate with your significant other? Oh, as one theologian says, think about what you daydream about or what you long for deep down. And how would you complete these sentences? If only I had this. We all have it if we pay too much attention to the sounds and the voices of our day and age. The more we stay on, on the internet or social media, these voices become louder and louder. That's why we need to go back to the word and allow his words be the loudest voice. And when was the last time you felt a sense of despair? Not sorrow, because we all lose things, and it is a right thing to experience loss and sorrow. But despair is different. Despair is like losing that ring from the Lord of the Rings. You lose that, and it's like, what's life purpose? Doesn't exist anymore, kind of despair. Can a Christian who trusts in almighty, all good, all sovereign, providential God really experience despair? The Corinthians deeply desire to worship God with God's people but also wanted to remain acceptable in their public square. They were really living a double life, serving many gods, essentially committing spiritual adultery, sharing, fellowshipping, 
with something alongside with their relationship with God. All of this, Apostle Paul says, as he continues in verse 15, I speak. I speak as to sensible people that you guys are. And he exhorts them and says, judge for yourself, yourselves what I say. Because what he's been saying has been pretty simple. It's been scriptural. He's been arguing the case for it. And it's pretty logical. Scriptural from the previous verses, all the cases he's made from the Old Testament example of idolatry, and similar logical argument that he's making from fleeing from sexual immorality, now flee from idolatry. Judge for yourselves what I say. In 2021, as a church, we've been um, learning how to pray by looking at Martin Luther, who teaches um, people to pray by going through like these four steps of instruction, giving thanks, confession of sins, and praying for help. Um, when we started the new year, we started with the first two commandments, and this is uh, what Martin Luther says, really essentially about idolatry as he comments on and leads us in how to pray through the first two commandments. He said, I am the Lord your God, etc. He's referencing the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, etc. Here I earnestly consider that God expects and teaches me to trust him sincerely in all things and that it is his most earnest purpose to be my God. I must think of him in this way at the risk of losing eternal salvation. My heart must not build upon anything else or trust in any other being. That's what it means to wrestle with idolatry there, right? Be it wealth, prestige, wisdom, might, piety, or anything else. In your current season of life, what are you wrestling with? What are the voices out there telling you that you should have? And you find yourself questioning God's goodness and timing. But I don't have this. Because that's when we get tempted to break the commandments. Today's passage about the threat of idolatry in our daily life and the persistent need to flee away again and again, not try to draw close and expect a way out, but flee from it, stay far away from it. It's the call for us to flee from idolatry this week. We have the Lord's Supper next week. How we live when we are not gathering is what this passage is really calling us to seriously consider so that when we do come together, we don't put on judgment on ourselves. We can't participate in idol worship during the week and come take the Lord's Supper and think we're okay. Why do we take Lord's Supper so seriously? It's because of this. 
Some churches just welcome anyone, whether they are Christian or not, to just come to the table. We can't do that because Scripture doesn't allow that. It calls us to take the gathering of people of God seriously, partaking in the Lord's Supper seriously, because we can't worship other idols and expect to be okay by just taking the Lord's Supper loosely. Brothers and sisters, as we continue, it's already end of January. Again, good intentions are good, but it's not sufficient. How's the Lord calling us to examine the idols of our hearts and come to Him? Would you join me as we continue to realign ourselves, be bold and courageous in examining the idols of our hearts and running away so that we might not be disqualified before the Lord? Join me as we pray. Lord God, we come before you We know that until you do return, we will continue to wrestle with the idols of our culture. But until then, would you help us to be vigilant in arming ourselves with a thorough knowledge of your word? Just no other way, Lord. Would you grow in us a greater hunger to know you? Spiritual hunger to learn your desires and your thoughts and your expectations from the word you've given us in the Bible. And would you help us to be vigilant in arming ourselves with a godly jealousy about the gospel, knowing that you are a jealous God who does not want to share your throne. Lord, help us to arm ourselves in such a way and help us to continue to grow in sound biblical view of who you are, Jesus, and what salvation looks like as your word continues to teach us. God, we are weak. So, Lord, we look to you knowing that you who began the good work in us you will be the one faithful to finish. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me.